This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Morning. Before we jump in, I want to hold a couple of books up here for you. Um, In what I'm going to talk about this morning, I read for the first time, I don't know why it was only for the first time, this has been around forever, A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. This is on the table back here. You won't agree with everything. I didn't agree with everything, but incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful and timely, even though it was written uh, in 81, I think, 1981. Really good. You ought to check that out. And then this book, I'm actually going to quote from it at the end this morning, Persecution in the Early Church. This is a book that... um, we have republished, it's an older book, Jake, where'd Jake go? When was this written? Yeah, 1906. But really easy to read and really, really helpful. Uh, the men here, Jake and Josh Congrove and some others, uh, put together a new edition of this, really excellent. Really excellent. Persecution in the early church. You should pick one up. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read for you chapter, verses 12 through 17. And the words will be behind me on the screen as well. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning in an issue that can be very difficult. Help us, we pray. Help your word to be bright and clear as we look at it this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So this is a conference about being salt and light, about confessing Christ in the public square. And my job this morning is to talk about all of that in the context of the state, the government, the civil magistrate. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because we live in a place and a time when there is real confusion on this point. And it isn't just an obscure academic point that stuffy old men or arrogant young punks argue about on the Internet. How we think about this changes everything. How do we live 
as Christians in America. It's just another way of asking the question, how do we live as Christians, period? If living as a Christian has no bearing on how we relate to the state, then there really is no place for Christ in the public square. And he has nothing to do with money or sex or marriage or war or justice or art or science or anything. And so as I said, there's real confusion about this question. How should Christians relate to the civil magistrate? Now what do I mean by civil magistrate? That's just a, an old term for something that all of us completely understand. Civil magistrate just means any agent of the civil government, either elected or appointed, who has authority. And so we have at least two civil magistrates here this morning. Brian Bailey is one, not elected, but appointed. Does Brian, Brian, do you have authority? Yeah, he's the state budget director. He has all kinds of authority. Corey? Where's Corey? I see Corey's not here. Corey's a police officer. Not elected, but appointed. Does Corey have authority? Oh, yeah. And there are probably more, maybe, in this room. That's all we mean by civil magistrate. Uh, an agent of the government, either appointed or elected, who has authority. So what is the connection between how we relate to the civil magistrate and being salt and light? I have two points this morning. Number one, one of the most missionary, evangelistic, salty, and bright things we can do as Christians is to honor the civil magistrate. Because when we honor the civil magistrate, we honor God. We see this plainly in 1 Peter 2, the passage we just read. Look at how much in 1 Peter 2, 12 to 17 is about God. Let me read it to you again. Look at it through this lens. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every institution, every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood of Christians, fear God, honor the king. This is all about God. Why? The most basic reason is because all authority originates in God. And we see this all through Scripture. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 4.32. God himself says to King Nebuchadnezzar, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Do you remember what Jesus said when he's standing before the civil magistrate 
Pontius Pilate, standing for the judgment seat of Pilate. And Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? What did Jesus say? You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. Think of what it would mean to pronounce that, to declare it, to uphold that in the public square. What would that look like? What would that sound like? What would that mean? There is no such thing as secular government. There is no such thing as secular government. There is no such thing as a realm that has no connection with God. There is no such thing as a government that exists independent of God. All human government, by definition, is religious. All human government appeals to an ultimate authority. The reality is, all human government is, in fact, established by God, whether they acknowledge it or not. And every human authority appeals to an ultimate authority. Now, of course, a wicked government that exalts itself against God, that puts itself in the place of God, will not acknowledge God as its rightful head. But that does not mean that that government is secular. Far from it. Because there will always be an ultimate authority. Every law in every land assumes an ultimate authority. There must be a sovereign. There must be a king. If God is not owned as king, then it will be the people or the state itself. But there will be a sovereign authority, and that sovereign authority will rule with God-like claims, always. And if you do away with the authority of God, you end up with nothing but tyranny. You end up with nothing but rule by the arbitrary whims of men. Now again, can you imagine what it would mean to declare that in the public square? Before we can declare it, we have to believe it. We need to burn this into our brains. Because this is not what we hear anywhere else but here in the church. And often we don't even hear it in the church. God removes kings and establishes kings. God most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. But it's actually even more intense than that. What do we mean when we say God? What do we mean when we say God? There was a time in our nation that everyone knew what we meant when when we said God. We meant the Christian God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who exists as Trinity, the one only true and living God who made the world and everything in it. Right? Many today will acknowledge God or even a creator if they're reading something old. 
and have to say the word. Many of us will speak of God in a generic sense, in a sense that will offend no one. But what about the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, God has installed his king, King Jesus, and he has given him the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2, we saw last night. Remember, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Remember, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. King over all kings. Lord over all lords. Remember the loud voices in heaven thunder out. The kingdom of the world has become, not will become, maybe someday, has become. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Remember, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, which means that he has done so in this age, right? But not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over what? Gave him his head over what? All of us want to say the church, but that's not what it says. It's true, but that's not what it says. Gave him as head over all things for the church. Head over all things. There is no generic puny God ruling the nations from a distance like a kind old man. No, King Jesus rules the nations. All authority is his. Kings and presidents and governors and generals and judges and budget directors and policemen rule by his leave. Period. We do not proclaim or serve a neutered, generic, passive God of polite company. We serve an aggressive king with an agenda. And his agenda is to subdue the nations under him, all the nations, this nation. Not with a sword that you and I could pick up, and wield against flesh and blood, but with a sword that comes out of his mouth. So we can all imagine a civil magistrate invoking the name of God. We hear it all the time, God bless America. That is a hackneyed phrase if there ever was one. An empty, pointless, tired, meaningless phrase coming out of the mouth of the civil magistrate. 
today. Can we imagine a civil magistrate at any level of government regularly invoking the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? May our Lord Jesus Christ bless America. May our Lord Jesus Christ rule over America. May our Lord Jesus Christ be praised. May our Lord Jesus Christ help us. Can you imagine anyone ever saying that? And so one of the most missionary, evangelistic, salty, and bright things we can do as Christians is to honor our civil magistrates. Why? Because we honor the king for the Lord's sake. We honor the civil magistrate for the Lord's sake. We're pointing to God as we honor the civil magistrate. Christians who obey the law because of God, Christians who are good citizens because of God, are constantly proclaiming the authority and the order and the majesty and the goodness of God. We do not honor the civil magistrate just so that life will be easy for us, just so that we don't get speeding tickets. We honor the civil magistrate because there is a God in heaven. There is a king on the throne. Our obedience and submission and honor pass through the civil magistrate and rest on God. And if we want to be faithful servants of God, then we must never tire of proclaiming that to the civil magistrate. Now, what are the implications for us practically? What does that look like? According to 2 Peter 2, it means we will behave ourselves in public. Why? It says we will keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they'll see. It means we will do, do good deeds so that God is glorified. It means we will submit to the governing authorities. We don't need a, an itemized list of every little detail of what that means. You know what that means. A according to Romans 13, it means that we will pay our taxes. It means that we won't use our freedom as an excuse for evil, but we will use our freedom as bond slaves of God. Now, by the way, think about what that would mean for a libertarian. How would a libertarian think of that? Freedom is not an end in itself. Freedom is not an excuse for evil. God gives freedom so that we can use the freedom in service of our King Jesus to rightly act as free men is to act as slaves of God. Not slaves of our own wandering desires. This is why Christians will always be the best citizens of any nation, because we believe in law. We believe in an absolute, unchanging law that flows from the absolute, unchanging character of God. And this has always been the case. Rulers should want Christian subjects and Christian citizens because we are the only ones who actually have a reason to honor and, and submit and obey. A reason that goes beyond 
fear of the sword, a reason that goes down to the level of conscience. And Christians, according to Scripture, are duty-bound to pray for the welfare of the civil magistrate. Why wouldn't a ruler want a nation filled with Christians? Why wouldn't a ruler do everything he can to see to it that the gospel runs freely in his land? Well, actually, that's a very good question, isn't it? Why wouldn't a ruler want a nation filled with Christians? Well, a ruler would not want a nation filled with Christians because Christians have a higher ruler than him. Which brings us to my second big point. One of the most missionary, evangelistic, salty, and bright things we can do as Christians is to disobey the civil magistrate. If there's a God in heaven, if he has established our Lord Jesus Christ as king and head over all things, And if the civil magistrate rules only by God's appointment and decree, then all human authority is derived. It is never absolute. All human authority is subject to a higher authority, the authority of God. Does God give real authority to fathers? Yes. But a father may not command his children to dishonor and disobey God. Does God give real authority to husbands? Yes. But a husband may not use his authority to destroy his wife. Does God give real authority to elders and pastors? Yes. But an elder or pastor may not use his authority to devour the sheep. And exactly the same thing is true in the civil realm. God gives real authority to the civil magistrate. And God commands that we submit to the civil magistrate. But that command to submit to the civil magistrate is always in the context of the higher authority of God. There are many Christians who completely fail to see this. They read 2 Peter 2. They read Romans 13. They think, well, the law of the land equals the law of God. But that's not so. We saw this recently here in Indiana when the county clerk of Davies County, a couple counties south of us, refused to to issue marriage licenses for same-sex couples even after a federal judge ordered her to do so. And Christians were saying, but it's the law of the land. She needs to submit to the government. Really? Is it really that simple? If the government commands it, we must obey Really? Well, sure, that's what the Bible says, right? We just read it. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, therefore whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God. There it is, see, we have no choice. The problem is the Bible actually teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that when a civil magistrate rejects the authority over him, when a civil magistrate rejects God, then the Christian has the duty to disobey. Just think, why did God establish the civil magistrate? What was the point? 1 Peter 2 tells us, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Which is Romans 13 in a nutshell. Romans 13 says it this way. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. <coughs> God established the civil magistrate as his minister as his servant, as his deacon, is the word that's used, to praise the good and punish the evil. But what happens when the civil magistrate start, starts praising the evil and punishing the good? What then? What happens is that civil disobedience becomes an option. In some cases, it becomes an absolute duty. How do we know that's the case? Well, because the Bible is filled with examples of godly men and women who disobeyed direct commands of the civil magistrate. It's filled with it. Think of the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. They defied a direct order of the civil magistrate, the lawful authority, the king of Egypt, whom God has established as the authority in the land. <coughs> The Pharaoh said to the midwives, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But what happened? It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And then the king of, the king of Egypt came and asked them, what's going on? And they lied to him. They said, uh, the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Yeah, that's it. Before the midwife. And God's response to this act of civil disobedience, it says, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. It's interesting our text in 1 Peter 2 says, Fear God 
honor the king. But these Hebrew midwives feared God, therefore they did not honor the king. They would not, they could not honor his command. And scripture is filled with this kind of thing. Think of the book of Daniel. The officials in Darius' court wanted to get rid of Daniel, so what did they do? They persuaded King Darius to establish a law that anyone who prayed to any god or man besides Darius would be thrown into the lion's den. And so what did Daniel do? Well, Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, this is the law of the land, the document is signed, he entered his house, Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. This is a direct, intentional, public act. He left the windows open. This is a public act of civil disobedience. Then, of course, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused the direct order of the king, the civil magistrate, to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Because that would be easy for us to wiggle out of, wouldn't it? No, this is a New Testament thing. Think of the Apostle Peter. Think of the man who wrote our text today, right? First Peter. Think of the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is thrown into prison. And the night before, he was to be brought before Herod, the civil magistrate, and condemned to death. An angel broke him out. And what did Peter do when he realized it was really happening, that it wasn't a dream or a vision, when he, when he came to his senses? What did he do? Did he say, wait. I was put in prison by the civil magistrate. I must submit to every human institution. I must honor the king. I need to go back and turn myself in. Is that what he did? No. It says, when he came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, the king. And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What about the other apostles? Acts chapter 5. Peter and the other apostles were arrested for preaching and they're thrown in jail. But again, an angel of the Lord broke them out and said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And they did. The very thing they were arrested for. And the rulers went and arrested them again and brought them before the council. And the high priest said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered the classic line, what? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And then the council flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and released them. And it says this, Acts chapter 5, it says the apostles went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they what? Kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Public 
direct, in-your-face civil disobedience. And then you have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the roadblock runner. Do you remember? 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. He ran the roadblock. He avoided the authorities. He was tricky. And he fled. This is the same man who wrote Romans 13. The same man who wrote Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. When the governing authorities were coming after him, unlawfully, he ran. The same man who said, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. Well, he had a fear of authority because he was doing what was good. But his flight was absolutely justified because the civil magistrate was prepared to punish him for his good behavior. So here's the point. Our duty to honor and submit to the civil magistrate is not absolute because the authority of the civil magistrate is not absolute. Sometimes it is our duty, it is our sacred duty before God To say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. What will happen if we do? Well, salty and bright things will happen if we do. Unbelievers will see things that turn their world upside down, that make no sense to them at all, that only make sense if there's a king in heaven Things like this, Hebrews chapter 10. Just listen to this. This is Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, after you became Christians, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners This is all in relationship to the civil magistrate. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How does that work? How does that work? How does anyone accept joyfully the seizure of your property by the civil magistrate? You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how it works. The government comes, persecutes you, takes your stuff, and you say, I've got a better house than that. Take it. And that turns the world upside down. 
They see things like this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. This is the Apostle Paul in prison at the hand of the civil magistrate. This is Rome. I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. God is using my suffering from the hand of the civil magistrate to bring about the salvation of his elect. That's what he says. The classic passage about apologetics, the classic passage about defending our faith to unbelievers comes in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake at the hand of the civil magistrate. It's right here in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, 14 to 17. Listen to this. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What hope is he talking about? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Oh, tell me about Christ. No. The hope that you have in the midst of persecution and suffering under the hand of the civil magistrate. They see patience. They see joy. What's going on? Be ready to give an account for that, is what he's saying. With gentleness, and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter goes on in chapter 4 with another word. 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, be a good citizen and obey the civil magistrate. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that, a righteous, that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When the world sees that, 
when they see it. God is glorified. The gospel advances. The kingdom spreads. Now, what should civil disobedience look like? I just want to say real three real quick things and I'll be done. A Christian, as a Christian, you can do three things. You can preach. You can protest. You can proclaim. You can prophesy. You can call the civil magistrate to repentance just like John the Baptist did to King Herod. All of us can do that. Secondly, you can flee. You can move to another state. You can move to another country. That's what John Calvin did. You can move from your home, battered wife. You can flee. And third, you can defend yourself. God does not call you to be a passive accomplice to the destruction of your life or your family. And you have the God-given duty to protect life. And if the civil magistrate unlawfully comes for you by force, you are allowed to defend yourself under the law of God. Anything beyond that should never be done as a private individual. Anything beyond that is only lawful as a representative of some lawful authority, either civil or ecclesiastical. As a part of a larger authority, not as a private individual, not as a renegade, not as a maverick, not as a vigilante. Now, I know that there's all kinds of questions that all of you are thinking right now. And so after I'm done, you can ask Doug Wilson. (laughs) He'll tell you all about it. (laughs) Yeah, you could flee. I want to read to you as we're done a quote from this book, Persecution in the Early Church by Workman. It's in chapter... Uh, two, I think, called Caesar or Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, In opposition to the infant church, there arose the might of Rome. The conflict was inevitable. The direct result of the genius of Christianity. A Christianity which had ceased to be aggressive would speedily have ceased to exist. Christ came not to send peace on earth, but a sword. Against the restless and resistless force of the new religion, the gates of hell should not prevail. But polytheism could not be dethroned without a struggle, nor mankind regenerated without a baptism of blood. Persecution, in fact, is the other side of aggression. The inevitable outcome of a truly missionary spirit. The two are linked together as action and reaction. Persecution, in short, is no mere incident in the life of the church which might possibly have been avoided. Persecution, rather, was the necessary antagonism of certain fundamental principles and policies in the empire of Caesar and the kingdom of Christ. 
And so it is today. Nothing has changed. This is exactly where we are today. You can worship Jesus. Fine. As long as you do it in church. They don't care. As long as you do it at home. What happens when you start worshiping Jesus in the public square? They will not stand for it. They will not stand for it. And I don't think most of us have ever even thought about it, let alone done it. If we take the Lordship of King Jesus seriously, if we take any ground in the public square, if we simply start to think about pushing back, even just a little, then we will know the wrath of the state and we will suffer. But the suffering will be glorious. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God and trust your soul to him. And then watch. Watch the world change. Watch King Jesus come and strike down his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth, his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord Christ, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, we hail you, we exalt you, we acknowledge you, we humble ourselves before you and ask for your forgiveness for our timidity and our fear, and for our duplicity. Forgive us for the ways that we bow the knee to Caesar and not to you, Lord Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would act, that you would rise up, that you would take possession of what is already yours, the nations, this nation. Show yourself to be king. And we do, Lord, look for the day when you will be acknowledged by all the nations as Lord and King. Help us, Lord, to put this into practice with wisdom with true godliness, with true humility, with our brothers and sisters. But we do pray, Lord, that you would change this town, this state, this nation through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to Clear Note Fellowship dot o-r-g